in our last episode. The testimony of Jesse Kramer, a witness to the murder of Joe Adams, resulted in the conviction of Harry Thomason. In August 1927, Sheriff Coleman arrested Fred Butch Thomason and Joe Boer for the murder of Lyle Shag Warsham. Meanwhile, Arlie Boswell was again fired upon by, he believed, members of the Burger Gang. <laughs> Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deniel Chapter 29, Part 2 For Berger and Millich, the days and nights of August had the smell of jail about them. Another jailbird, Art Newman, was whisked mysteriously to Taylorville on August 25th, where he testified before a grand jury. On August 30th, he was returned to Menard. Later it was learned that the Sheltons were to be tried in Taylorville for the robbery of the Kincaid Bank in 1924, and that, as usual, Art Newman was presenting evidence against them. On September 27th, four years to the day after the robbery, the brothers surrendered at Taylorville, only to be freed on bond. The Shelton's subsequent conviction on January 7, 1928, was reversed by the Illinois Supreme Court after a witness recanted his testimony. Their other foe, Charlie Berger, had an October 15th execution date hanging over him. Announcement had been made on September 6th that attorney R.E. Smith would appear before Supreme Court Judge Warren Duncan on the following day to ask for a stay of execution. But September 7th came and passed without such a request being made. On October 5th, Berger's lawyers filed a petition for a writ of error with the Illinois Supreme Court, and on October 7th, the court granted a stay of execution. Berger will not hang. I predict he will die a natural death gushed Charles Karch when he heard the good news, even though it was now a certainty that the hanging would not occur in 1927. Berger signed papers the following day for the adoption of Minnie and Charlene by his sister Rachel. Living in Detroit and married again, the former Beatrice Berger was stunned by the news. From a newspaper account, she had learned that adoption proceedings were underway, and upon her husband's advice, she wired the judge in St. Louis, informing him that she was Charlene's real mother. Needless to say, her attempt to gain custody was unsuccessful. Meanwhile, her former husband took comfort from knowing that his one-time pal and now bitter enemy, Harvey Dungy, had been moved to the Marion Jail from Menard on October 10th, preparatory to his appearance as a defendant in the upcoming Warsham trial. That was small comfort, however, considering that Dungy's testimony would probably brand Berger as a cold-blooded killer, or worse, a weak leader swayed to unspeakable violence by members of his gang. As October ticked away, one gang member thought often of the hangman. Despite efforts on his behalf by the Serbian consul in Chicago, Rado Milic still was scheduled to hang on October 21st. Time, so slow and wearying when he worked in the mines at Benton and Ziegler, raced for the sad-eyed man with large ears. Before it was gone, he wanted his photograph taken. Heretofore, he had appeared in group shots of men firing at mythical enemies or was shown as one of many gathered around an armored car, doing his best at bravado. 
But Rado wanted a formal portrait, something to show the world he wasn't such a bad-looking fellow, even for a gangster. The more fortunate Ural Gowan, who would only forfeit his young manhood in prison, also wanted an image, in his case of youth itself, permanently fixed in black and white. Dressed in their finest, the two were manacled and placed under a heavy guard, then marched to a local studio. After the sitting, Milich asked how long they would have to wait for the results. When the photographer replied a little too casually that the prints would be ready in about a week, Milich insisted that he hurry, since he had only 11 days left to live. It was only after he was assured that the prints would be ready before October 21st that he allowed a smile to break through his otherwise sad countenance. October 21st also disturbed the thoughts of Oren Coleman, who usually kept his ruminations to himself. Shaken to discover that as sheriff, he was also expected to be Milich's hangman, Coleman immediately began to look for someone to take his place. Boswell suggested Phil Hanna of Epworth, a gentleman farmer who was known throughout the Midwest as the sympathetic hangman. The two officials wasted no time motoring to White County to secure Hannah's services. Boswell recalled that long ago conversation in the hangman's home. What is your price? I'm afraid, Mr. Coleman, that you can't pay the price. Just what is your price? The price will not come from you, Mr. Coleman. It will come from the state's attorney here, Mr. Boswell. The hanging, I believe, is to be at 10 o'clock. Five minutes of 10, I will be in Boswell's office. Nobody else is to be there but Boswell. Setting on his desk will be a quart of old Taylor whiskey, and in another container will be a quart of water with ice. After the hanging, I will go directly to Boswell's office, and no one will be there but him. And still, setting on that desk will be what is left of that quart of whiskey and fresh water and ice. After five minutes, he may invite to his office anyone he wants. Now you, Mr. Coleman, 30 minutes before the hanging, I will be at your jail. I will want you to take me into the cell of Mr. Millich, and I will talk to him until 10 minutes before the hanging, when I will leave for the office of Mr. Boswell. I will return to the scaffold promptly at 10 o'clock. If the victim desires to make any statements, he will make those statements, and that you will have to ascertain. And when he has completed his statements, and you nod, I will put the black hood over his head and adjust the noose around his neck, and I will nod to you, and you will spring the trap. Gentlemen, it has been good to talk to you. Good day, and I will see you October 21st. Was it some repressed bloodlust that drove this middle-aged, seemingly gentle man to take the lives of convicted killers? Hardly. Thirty years earlier, young Phil Hanna had had the misfortune to see a man strangled to death as a result of a hangman's ineptitude. Since that time, he had become an authority on ropes and knots and other paraphernalia usually associated with death on the gallows. All this to ensure that the victim died quickly and painlessly. The night of October 20th was a somber one in the Marion Jail. To liven it up a bit, one of the prisoners turned, with his finger, the turntable of a broken-down record player, thereby flooding the closeness and dark with a scratching melody. His wasted life almost finished, Rado Milich bade farewell to his fellow prisoners. Among the recipients of the gangster's parting remarks were two youngsters who were spending the night in jail for committing some minor offense. These two in particular, Rado admonished to go straight, lest, like him, they someday find themselves facing a last tomorrow. It was a night for visiting. From Franklin County came a family with whom Millich had boarded when he worked in a coal mine at Ziegler. Also, some of his countrymen, 
whom he had known before the gangster days, came to pay their respects. As well as he could, Rado thanked each for stopping by. Less welcome was Arlie O. Boswell, who earlier in the day had learned that a vindictive Millich was spreading tales about his involvement in some of the unsolved crimes of the Burger Gang. Ill-timed and awkward, though the confrontation was sure to be, Boswell felt it important that they talk. Rado, I hear that you're sore at me. Thus understating considerably the condemned man's grievances. Less than clever at the best of times, Millich could only mumble that he was being framed. Was it true he was accusing him of ordering the prices killed? And of plotting with Berger to kill Sheriff Coleman, Boswell asked. You know I tell the truth, Millich replied. Staring at him for a moment, the state's attorney asked the prisoner where he was when those crimes were committed, and was satisfied to hear him reply, Independent entity. The halting strains of the phonograph drifted through the midnight silence. Millich and the other prisoners played cards until almost dawn. The weather on the morning of October 21st provided no somber backdrop to the executions soon to occur in the boarded-up area beside the Marion Jail. Better a chilling rain or storm punctuated with a roll of thunder than the beautiful harvest weather, a sky like a vast blue glass bell, and, beneath it, in fields that might have been painted by N.C. Wyeth, pumpkins half the size of washtubs. This was the time for young men to be in those fields, and for old men to read a mild or mean winter in the thickness of the corn shucks. Yet here, just off the Marion Square, the meaning of harvest was twisted, as young men and old gathered to watch a man die. The lucky ones were admitted into the jail yard. One of the young fellows had earlier asked Sheriff Coleman for a pass, but instead had been handed a machine gun. He was now a guard. Shortly before 10 a.m., Millich emerged from a side door of the jail. As his fellow prisoners watched from the barred windows of the two-story structure, he walked briskly toward the scaffold, mounting it two steps at a time. Standing on the trap door, he raised his manacled hands to the prisoners watching from the second story. Also on the platform were Sheriff Coleman, Sheriff Pritchard, Sheriff Petrie of Belleville, Williamson County Deputies Brady Jenkins and Joe Schaefer, and the inevitable Phil Hanna. Among those witnessing the execution was Arlie O. Boswell, who watched as Petrie and Schaefer tied the prisoners' arms and legs with leather straps. Once this procedure was completed, Boswell saw Coleman take a folded piece of paper from Millich's pocket, unfold it, and hand it to him. As well as he could, Millich read the typewritten letter. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you this morning for the last time. You no doubt wonder just how I feel. In these, my last few words, I want to say, as I have said ever since I was arrested on this charge, I killed Ward Jones in self-defense. People someday will know the truth, and they'll find out I killed an innocent man. I may not have been everything I should or could have been. I have done wrong, I know that. But when my last breath is breathed, I shall still be thinking and knowing and feeling I should never have been hung for killing Ward Jones. None of you people would have hung for killing him. He was a machine gunman and had threatened to kill me. Ray Highland told you people Jones was drunk that day and said he was going to get somebody. Harry Thomason told Harvey Dungey at Chester he had come down here and swore a pack of lies because Boswell told him to, and he has offered to sign affidavits to that effect. My lawyers say they do all they can for me. Charlie Berger was to hang on October 15th, but he is still alive. 
I was poor and nobody cared anything about me. I never went to school a day in my life, but I know when they frame a fellow. I got out of prison on parole, but the mines were not working and I had to get work any place I could, but I was not a gangster. After desperately trying to salvage one moment of glory from an existence bereft of grandeur or eloquence, Milich began tearing the letter into pieces, but he kept talking. I want to say to you people here that the man sending me to the gallows, Arlie O. Boswell, is the man who had Lori Price and wife killed, and someday you will know that I tell the truth. Also, that when Charlie Berger's cabin was burned, Charlie Berger himself was in the front line. He handed the remnants of the letter to Coleman. Thank you. Go ahead. Over his head went the black hood. Phil Hanna adjusted the noose. At a signal from Hanna, Coleman tried to kick open the trap door. Sheriff Coleman kicked the trap, recalled Joe Schaefer. Just about that time, Rada went off balance, fell over in my hands, and I had to drop him through the trap. After he went down, it was a mess. Interviewed about the incident five years later, Hannah would blame the mess, as Schaefer called it, less on Sheriff Coleman's ineptitude than on Milich's refusal to take the narcotic that was customly made available to the condemned. Brave as he was, the man under the black hood fainted the moment before the trap door banged open, plummeting him into eternity. However ineptly the trap was sprung, the jail seemed to shake with the sound, or so recalled a prisoner watching at the time. He also remembered Fred Thomason holding his head in his hands as he cried aloud, Oh my god, oh my god. When reporters asked his reaction to Milich's parting remarks, Boswell quickly replied, Why should I deny anything that a gangster or any condemned man might say? Privately, however, he did not shrug off the matter so lightly, believing that Coleman had not only written the letter, but also encouraged Milich to denounce him publicly. From his cell in Benton, Berger defended Boswell, calling the charges the last shot of a poor dumb fool at the man who sent him to die. While he disagreed with much of what Milich had to say, both about Boswell and himself, he could find no fault with the man's game and manner at the end. He had really never liked Milich, had distrusted him in the beginning, but now that the homely Montenegrin had faced death defiantly, he could only shake his head and hope that he would conduct himself as well at his own hanging. Next time. It took the jury only 12 minutes to find the defendant legally sane. Smith let it be known shortly thereafter that the long fight was over. That night, Berger ripped off a strip of his blanket, tied one end to one of the horizontal bars in the cell and the other end around his neck. When the guards found him, he was unconscious. Oh.